everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. While I know some of you may have been expecting a deep dive episode this week, we've kind of never really stuck to a super strict schedule here at Nerd Alert, mostly because we seem to be pretty incapable of doing so. Uh, so we are back today with another group show, uh, partly because we wanted to take this opportunity to extend a very warm congratulations to our resident ace mechanic, Zach Edwards of the Boulder Groupetto, who just got married this past weekend. Congratulations, Zach. Thank you. Zach is clearly taking a lot of time off after being married. <laughs> uh, also joining us today is Cycling Tips Senior Tech Editor Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. And, uh, well, we do not have Kaylee just at this very moment. Uh, Kaylee has, well, Kaylee officially is still on another call that is running quite late. Um, but if you happen to hear any thumping going on, going on in the background... Uh, well, that's partially because we're recording outside of the Boulder Groupetto instead of inside because my kid has COVID right now and I don't want to run the risk of getting Zach sick. So we're recording outside. Um, but anyway, that thumping may or may not be Kaylee trapped in a room somewhere and we may or may not just be biding our time to let him out. So I don't know if you can hear that thumping in the background with these mics, but if, if you can, that might be where Kaylee is. So in any event, we're going to start the show without him today. Uh, Dave, I don't know. I don't know how the weather has been in Sydney recently, but Zach, you're... Not great. Uh, hmm. Zach, your wedding like, was nearly snowed out. So I'm kind of curious, what was the background, uh, what was the backup plan going to be if the snow came a day later? Uh, I mean, we had a tent and we had a barn, so we'd have been fine. Yeah, there but you go. Perfect. It, it snowed. I don't know. I mean, I don't remember how much it snowed down here, but where I live, we had like over a foot of snow. Hmm. So that was pretty fun for late May. Hmm. Not, not completely atypical. No. Uh, Dave, usual question for you. Mm. Most recent tool purchases. Uh, this is such a problem because I, every time you ask me this, I personally recognize how much of a problem I have because I can't think of what the most recent one I bought is. I was going to say, um, this, this shouldn't be a hard question for most I know, people. Like, I know. Um, I, okay. I know the last one I bought, which is an, a new Olight, uh, inspection torch. So there you go. But if we go back more than 24 hours before that, I'm not sure. I, I really hope you're like somehow claim, like like can you write stuff off on your taxes in australia like can, can you do that because i mean i do but my this accountant is like half says of your i shouldn't income yeah um no i do i do but uh okay. apparently it's a gray area of the of the tax law so anyway hmm. hope for that right. no one from our australian tax office is listening all right well at some point we'll go ahead and get that gofundme going for your tool obsession we'll see see if they can get see if we can get anybody to contribute to that Anyway, the reason we are back with a group show today is we've kind of had a big week for tech news and didn't really want to wait another week to chat about that stuff. So in yet another sign that Specialized is awfully good at keeping its brand in the news cycle, uh, the company just launched a new flagship road shoe that raises some new questions on what should be considered standard versus wide when it comes to cycling footwear. Garmin has entered into the rearview camera game. Uh, running eyewear brand Gooder is now shaking up the cycling eyewear uh, market. And Dave's latest Cool Tool Tuesday column kind of makes me wonder where people should draw the line between buying tools and learning how to work on stuff versus just taking their bike to a good mechanic like Zach here. So speaking of which, uh, since we have Zach here now, uh, needless to say, we will, we will wrap up this week's episode with another Ask a Mechanic segment. All right. First up in the news. So we have these new specialized S-Works Torch shoes that just dropped. Dave, you've got a pair. I've got a pair. Uh, there's a whole bunch of changes that you can read all about in the in-depth article that I wrote on SockingTips.com. But what I really want to talk about is the company's position that what most brands consider to be their wide fit should actually just be the normal fit. Uh, specifically speaking, Specialized already had, already had, I would say, one of the more generously sized toe boxes out there, relatively speaking. Um, but the standard fit of the new S-Works Torch is now four mils wider than the outgoing S-Works 7. And there's also an S-Works Torch wide that is eight millimeters wider. Uh, for those of you who really liked the uh, the standard fit of the S-Works 7, that is now going to be called the narrow fit in the S-Works Torch. Um, and just to be clear, we are talking about actual measured widths, not just theoretical widths. Uh, and there are wider carbon plates to match too. So my question to the rest of the nerds, are cycling shoes generally too narrow? Yes. <laughs> I'd be curious because I have the sevens and I really like them and I wouldn't find them to be too narrow. So it'd be interesting whether the normal one of this, the new ones would be good for me or the yeah. narrow, which is the old normal. Yeah. Just um, 
It's it's a really interesting question because I think if you look at why specializers change their last, it's because they want to be more applicable and uh, fit better across more uh, an, a greater number of people across a larger population. So I think the the straight answer to your question is yes, they're too narrow because specializers' data has found that they're going to sell more shoes by making their shoes wider. That said, the new regular fit of the specialized doesn't fit me as well as the old last. So I think I'm on one side of the bell curve as probably Zach is as well. And for the skinny footed people, then I think they'll probably find that there's still a a large number of other shoe brands that are perhaps too narrow for the mass population, which are still going to work well for them. Uh, And Specialized themselves have a narrow fit as well of this new shoe. So one thing that I that, that Zach and I were talking about before we started recording was if you just think about kind of whoever's listening right now, if you think about your own history with cycling shoes and you think about buddies that you ride with, that sort of thing, how often do you hear people complain that their shoes are too narrow versus complaining that their shoes are too wide? Like you really just don't hear that often. They're like, oh, my cycling shoes are way too roomy. Mm. It just doesn't happen that much. I mean, it does happen no. on occasion. But it's, it seems to be very much the exception rather than the norm. I'm trying to think, though, on group rides and stuff. I don't, I don't recall anyone being like, oh, these shoes are too narrow. Well, I, th- I guess it's more like internet forums and stuff like that. But yeah. like, it, it, you, you, certainly have, you certainly see much more often that if a company offered a fit variation on their current shoe, on, on whatever shoe that they offer, they offer a wide version. Almost no, almost no one offers a, uh, a, a fit variant that is narrower than their standard version, right? So yeah, like you know, so now Specialized has gone wider with their regular fit, um, which, from what I can tell and from what they have more or less confirmed to me, that is going to trickle into the rest of the line. Um, so and uh, I probably should have mentioned. So whereas before you had, you know, S Works, S Works two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, as far as all of their top end road shoes go, uh, that that there is a name change. Uh, it is just going to be called Torch. All their road shoes are going to be called Torch, which is kind of more consistent with what they have for the rest of their line. And it also makes a lot more sense now that they have, you know, S Works Torch and S Works Ares and S Works Exos and S Works uh, 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 Evo and Vent and like th- there's a whole bunch of S Works shoes now. So it does make more sense that it co- that actually has a name now instead of just a number. Um, but anyway, now that Specialized has a, the wide version is normal for their new shoes. Uh, Physique recently came out, uh, I guess not super recently, but it, it, you know, fairly recently, in the last year or two. They now have a wide range for a bunch of their shoes that people have been clamoring for for quite a long time. Um, I would love to know from Physique which, which version of their shoes is going to end up more popular on their end. Uh, I, I dare say they're probably going to sell a heck of a lot of those wide versions. Um, but you know, you always had brands like Lake and Bont, who have always been prop, who have always been popular with a certain subset of the cycling population because they have been wider than normal. And I just wonder if this is how it's going to be for other brands moving forward. Yeah, I think there's there's absolutely a trend, and I think what's interesting is the way Specialized explained their their new last is that traditionally in shoes, you make up the extra width by building more volume into the upper. And then that volume kind of just stretches as the foot needs to go wider. It kind of just flattens itself out um, to make up the width. Uh, whereas they were saying like their their approach of actually making the upper wider on a base plate that is wider actually isn't necessarily the industry norm. And they were th- in their in their words that was quite. It's not revolutionary and it's not innovative, but it's 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 different and it's it's kind of a rare way of doing things. It's certainly a more expensive way of doing things to have a different uh, a different sole for the regular fit and then for the wide fit. You know, that's twice the number of uh, carbon soles that you have to have made. So, um, yeah, I think I thought that was quite interesting, and I think that approach to to extra width will probably be um, mimicked by others. I think it'll be interesting how they implement either like training on the bike shop side or instruction on the internet consumer side of yeah you're going you already have to decide what size you get of the shoe yeah and that varies between if you're buying a specialized or a Giro or a cd or whatever like that's completely different and now you have three different widths to choose from like do you just randomly pick one or is there a way to measure your foot or do you go to a bike fitter and they tell you or like if you just go to your average bike shop that even carries us work shoes they're the chance of them having 
all three widths mm-hmm. in the size that you need it's, is is very very small. Yeah. Well, so it'll what? be really interesting, like how they how they implement getting people in the right shoe. Well, one thing that's kind of funny is, so I I went over to, so Specialized has an office here in Boulder. Uh, I went over there for the little presentation that they had uh, on, on the shoes. And while I was there, they did scan my feet using that retool scanner that they used apparently to collect all these, like what, 108,000 foot scans or whatever that they used to, to redo the last. And what I found kind of curious about that is that the... The, the tool told me that I should be wearing some uh, size 44 in their road shoes when I actually wear 43. Like, 43 is, like, dead-on perfect. Um, what would you know? But, uh, yeah. But what I, what, I, what I would love to see more companies do is, um, I know Bont has done this before, and I think at least a couple of other companies have done this. I would love to see more companies have a downloadable, printable form on their websites that mm-hmm. have a grid pattern or whatever. Um, yeah. To uh, essentially sort of like mimic a Brannock tool that you have in, in shoe stores and stuff so that you can just print out this sheet, like one-to-one scale, yep. step on it, and get yeah. a real physical measurement for I've, what I've seems I've been to led be. astray by those as well. Like, so Please had I mean, one, and it, I, mean, I ended up not, with a shoe size that was half a size too small. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're not perfect. there needs to be something. Otherwise, it's like yeah. a very expensive experiment to be like, I'm going to try this shoe, and you can even like put it on when it's brand new in the box, and like it could feel great, and then you get out on a ride. And your feet kind of swell a little bit, and you're like, actually, this isn't what I want. And then those shoes are used, and you can't return them, and they're what you, yeah. they're like 450 bucks or something. Like that's yeah. a super expensive experiment. Yeah. But going back to your initial point, Zach, which is um, Specialized are claiming that they believe most people should get a retool scan to get at least the width correct, m- potentially maybe not the the length. But how many but how many people live correct. live near a bike shop that has that? Not that many, but uh, from their point of view, they believe, based on their data, they think most people are in a shoe too narrow for them, is my understanding. They believe most people, if they got a retool fit, they'd understand that they'd probably need to actually move up a width in shoe and that they'd be more comfortable, but they'd never know. So um, I thought that was quite an interesting little tidbit from them, that they, they actually think more people should be in wide fit, wide fit shoes than they than currently are. Well, Zach, you mentioned that the the current S-Works 7 uh, you think fits really well, and I certainly have no reason to doubt that. But I would be curious to know if at some point you have an opportunity to try out these new, uh, these new S-Works Torch shoes. Um, if you do put them on and you're kind of like, oh, actually, this wider thing is better. Or if you are on the narrow end of the scale like Dave is, um, yeah, I, I, I'd be curious to hear your feedback if and when you ever get around to trying to pair on. Yeah, I'd be I mean, super be curious, curious myself. Like, just be interesting to see... Like, I mean, four millimeters in the grand scheme of things isn't a lot, but for a cycling shoe that you spend hours in, it seems like it is a lot. So it'd be interesting to see what the difference is there. Yeah. The the other thing with these shoes that's really interesting is that Specialized are really uh, very clearly taking an approach of offering different style of fitting shoes. So they might eventually end up all with the same last, but they they basically, they've got the Aries, which they they claim is very much like a, it hugs the ball of the foot and keeps sort of your the forward portion of your foot locked into the shoe. Whereas this new torch, they're talking all about like midfoot and heel retention, and you've your the front like the ball of your foot and forward is basically just almost free to flop around. Um, kind of, yeah, yeah. It's not, not quite as free as like the Exos, that crazy light shoe yeah. that they had that had no heel cup, uh, no or no heel counter, I should say. Yeah. So th- this S Works torch is kind of in some ways in between those two shoes, mm-hmm. um, which is. Which is kind of funny because which is also great though. Like I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to have a shoe that I use when I go do nice training rides in the mountains. And then let's say I want to do a crit. I don't want to have to have another pair of five hundred dollars shoes because I need different support. On well, my no, but like, if you have the money, Zach, clearly, if now that you know you that there three. is a shoe that is purposely divine, uh, purpose built for for crits and sprinting. I mean, how how yeah. can you go do that race without that shoe? Yeah, it's, it's not possible. I'm losing <laughs> a tenth of a lot. But I think it's great if it kind of splits the difference and is a good, just a good all around road shoe. I think yeah. that's great. Yeah, so they're pitching it as like it's it's personal preference, right? So they're, they're kind of walking back. Like the initially, I kind of felt like they'd pitch the Aries as like a sprinter shoe and they're kind of walking that back being like, oh, it's now personal preference. You'd pick it if you want that sort of forward foot yeah. retention is, To feel. me too, though, like kind of comes back to like the, the sizing, like how if you're an average consumer, how do you decide mm-hmm. without... It's confusing. Yeah. Like it's there's super confusing yeah. and and there are different lasts between them too. So like you have different widths and yeah. different like the links are going to be different. Like mm-hmm. you could get a forty five in all of them and they could be completely different. And I think 
yeah, it'd just be interesting to see how they kind of streamline that and help guide people into the correct one rather than just being like, oh, it's personal preference. Be like, if your foot is this shape, this is the shoe that's going to like yeah. statistically fit you the best. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it shouldn't be this hard. No, you would it shouldn't think. be. Which, again, comes back to my little print, printable thing because even if people scale for like, what's a 42, what's a 43, 44, even if their own scale in within a certain brand varies a little bit, in theory, at least if they have this little printable thing that you step on, um, I mean, it won't account necessarily for like your know, arch flattening and that sort of thing, um, but it at least hopefully will give you some sort of rough indication so you're not completely taking a stab in the dark. Yeah. So anyway, um, but yes, those shoes are extremely expensive. And as I noted in the review, because uh, Specialized has all but said explicitly that this last is going to uh, distribute out amongst the rest of its road range, potentially amongst, amongst its mountain range too, I don't really know. Um, but uh, it'll certainly be good to see this be offered in a lot of other lesser, uh, lower-priced shoes so that a lot people have a lot more options because, yeah, uh, they're quite expensive. Yeah, 650 Australian. Ouch. That is a lot of money. On uh, And also, just not to harp on too much about these shoes, but I'd always complained about uh, issues with specialized shoes pinching around my Achilles and then the the tongue sort of like digging in at the front of of my foot where the tendon runs down the bottom, the front of your foot. And uh, they have recognized both of those and sold for both of those. So I wasn't crazy. Nope, you were not crazy. So yeah, anyway, if you want to read all the details about those shoes, head over to cyclingtips.com and get the full skinny. Moving on, next in the news. So Garmin has had its very rear-facing rear radar units since 2015. It's been seven years now. And Australian brand Cyclic de uh, debuted its Fly 6 rear view camera uh, in 2014, but now Garmin has combined the two concepts into one with a new RCT 715. So this thing features a 1080p 30 frame per second camera with a 140 degree field of view. Uh, you can record in a loop just like you could with Cyclic. Um, you have automatic incident detection that saves the footage before and after a crash. Uh, you also have the same handy radar and uh, flashing LED features that alert riders or that alert drivers when there's a car. Uh, you also have the same handy radar and uh, radar features that alert riders when a car is approaching and you have built-in LED uh, that will actually change its flashing pattern when a car is approaching to kind of like, you know, let a driver know that, hey, there's a bike in front of it you may, may or may not want to hit. Um, this thing is not cheap. It's 400 US, uh, six hour runtime. Obviously, it won't really work great for really long rides. And I will say uh, our friend Ray's review over at DC Rainmaker wasn't particularly kind um, nevertheless, I do find devices like this pretty interesting. Um, I personally didn't use the Varrier radar for a long time, but I've actually recently gotten into a lot more. So I'm using the, the previous generation one that does not have a camera on it. Um, I actually really kind of like now that it tells me when cars are approaching because, uh, you know, historically I've just kind of relied on hearing and you can't really hear everything, especially when you're moving at speed. Um, but I've been really curious about the camera thing because... Um, I have had a fly sticks before and I have used it before and, uh, I put a little question out on my Twitter feed. Uh, I think it might've been yesterday or earlier today or something, kind of just asking people why they run cameras on their bikes because it, I mean, it really doesn't serve much of a purpose in just day-to-day -day operation, but essentially what people are doing is they're running this camera. They're, they're having these cameras on their bike running all the time because they're expecting to get hit at some point and they are expecting to need the footage to use in their defense, um, which I find actually really sad that we have gotten to this point where people now feel like they have to run a camera because they expect to get hit. Mm -hmm. It's a depressing thought. All right. Well, it, it is definitely a little sad that a lot of people feel like they have to run one of these things expecting to be hit at some point, but I guess that is the place where we're at right now. So the question I have then, um, if anyone has not had a chance to read Ray's review, it's quite in-depth, as they always are. Um, but what I'm wondering is, for a rear-facing radar unit that is supposed to detect cars and let you know what's going on, that, that part, Garmin seems to have done quite well. But as far as the camera goes, Garmin clearly hasn't quite hit the mark on this thing, and Cyclic hasn't always, uh, certainly hasn't been perfect either. Uh, certainly hasn't been perfect either. So what I'm wondering, though, is, I guess, why is this so hard to do when we have GoPros, for example, that have been amazing for their video quality, 
Um, what is it that we need to have from these things for them to really be useful? Is there a reason to not just use a GoPro? Well, yes. I mean, the even GoPro is is I guess proof of what the issue is. Is that GoPro have what they're an incredibly well funded company? Perhaps not as well funded these days, but at one point in time, they were an incredibly well funded company, and they could only create a camera that what had a battery life of maybe two hours and still had the occasional reliability issue. And whereas Cycle IQ and or Cyclic and Garmin, they're basically looking to get eight plus hours out of a camera while sharing a battery with a light. It just kind of seems like we're asking too much of the technology. Just need massive battery pack on SmartSense. <laughs> need to plug it into your e-bike battery. Yeah, exactly. Well, that is one thing that I'm wondering is as we have more things that are battery powered or I guess electronic on your bike, and as we see the continued proliferation of e-bikes, I mean, it, it seems to be certainly more slowly adopted on the road than in other disciplines. Um, but as we see e-bikes becoming more popular overall, you know, it, it seems logical that at some point we're going to see all these accessories ha have the ability to just sort of plug into your main battery, right? Because, yes, I mean, I, for sure, David, we seem to be sort of outrunning current battery technology or just current technology in general in terms of power draw and power availability. But if you are able to... I guess, piggyback all that stuff off of the main battery, which is massive, um, then at that point, that seems like it would make a lot more sense, right? Like, why, why don't we have a version of a Garmin Varia or a version of a Cyclic or whatever that you can plug directly into a Bosch accessory port or something like that? Doesn't Cannondale have one on their new bikes? Yes, but it's not integrated, mm. which sort of highlights the issue here because... Yep. Like I'm, I'm finishing up the review of the Cannondale Synapse Carbon. What is it? The One RLE. I think it's their, their. I think it might be their flagship model with the. It's got Dura Ace Di2 on it, and it has their integrated front and rear lights and integrated Garmin Varia radar. But all of that stuff is still run off of a separate battery, and it does, which does not power the Di2 directly. I mean, I think too, like, uh, like people that I know that run these use them for training during the week, and then take it off for their racing on the weekend. So, like, if you're also using the same bike trace, you probably don't want this big central battery that weighs a ton. And you just use it because you're putting in long miles on busy roads and just want to have a fail-safe in case you do get hit. But, like, that's probably why it's not been done across the board. I think e-bikes and stuff, it totally makes sense, but... Yeah, fundamentally, I mean, the, the technology, what it needs to be successful, and the theory behind it is, if you can get the technology to be mainstream enough... That mo that it, almost everyone behind the wheel of a car understands that they might be being filmed, then they will change their behavior, and that's the theory with this technology. But in reality, is you've got you've had this quite niche Australian brand that didn't have enough budget to get the word out, and they kind of failed at that. And then Garmin now is kind of going after just a a very premium end of the market, which again is not going to hit a mainstream audience. So fundamentally, yeah, you've got this product that is only only serving the role as being proof of being hit, which isn't a very attractive or really, you know, happy feeling selling proposition. And because of that, you're not going to get a huge amount of funding into the technology for this. Ooh. Uh, I, I guess another thing that we haven't talked about either is the fact that even if you can get the hardware really good, you also need to have really good software or a really good app essentially to, to, to power and control all this stuff. Right. Um, cause Essentially, what good is having really good footage if you're not really able to find it very well? And I know that was one main criticism from Ray's review. Yeah, and these, yeah, the both, you know, all the all the products that do this aim to have some sort of crash incident protection where it, it saves the footage within a, a certain time period of of ha of detecting a an impact or or you know uh, detecting the bike falling over, I guess, uh, and then that's meant to be your most recent footage. But it's still it's. That's an imperfect solution for anyone that's ever used like a Garmin's incident um, detection on on a head unit. Will know that that it, it can be quite sensitive and and wrong. So uh, yeah, there, there's just issues in their technology, and to have the resolution high enough for for recording of license plates and recording of detail, then the file sizes are quite large. And yeah, modern technology like just passing it over to a phone, it's just. Uh, there's still limitations over file sizes this big. Right, right. Well, 
hopefully this technology continues to improve because again, as much as it's a bummer that people feel the need to run a camera on their bike, if you're going to run a camera on your bike, you may as well run a good run a good one. So, uh, Cyclic, you've got some work to do. Garmin, you still have some work to do. Like even stuff like basic stuff like image stabilization. But anyway, hopefully all that stuff will continue to improve. Uh, electronic stuff has a tendency to do that. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. Maybe at one point we'll get one of these Garmin's in, see if it's any good. But moving on. Uh, on a happier note, so Gooder is a sunglass brand that busted into the running scene in 2015, and it pretty quickly gained a rather massive following uh, with its collection of pretty super fun models, uh, pretty decent quality, super attainable price points. And we're, we're talking like $25, $30 US for glasses that actually don't totally suck. Um, they have polarized polycarbonate lenses, decent plastic frames, and so on. So they just launched their first wraparound model called the Wrap G that's aimed at the cycling crowd. It's a little bit more expensive. They're $45 US. Um, but aside from the fact that the lenses are really prone to scratching, which is a bummer, they're actually quite good. Um, I'd say they look pretty sweet, they fit well, the lens tints are actually pretty good. They don't feel like total garbage. I mean, they actually feel like a pretty good quality thing, especially for 45 bucks. Um, I mean, no, they're not as good as something like a premium option from Oakley or Smith or whatever, but they're also like a quarter to a half the price. Um, do we think Gooder or another company like Gooder perhaps might shake up the cycling eyewear market, or will those companies still just carry on as usual with pretty expensive eyewear? I mean, I think purely the fact that the lenses scratch really easily, like immediate turn off. Like I've got, like Oakley's costs a lot more, but I've got Oakley's that are over five years old that I ride in all the time, and the lenses are still almost perfect after I've mountain biked with them in the mud and dropped them and like- Wiping off with clearsies and stuff. Yeah, you just clean them up and they're fine and the optics are still great and they're not all scratched. And like, they're Oakley's, still, like yeah. they're over five years old, and they've still got multiple years of life left in them. So for me, I'm definitely, I would rather the qual like quality over quantity. So like if these scratch and you have to replace them in six months, like that's not good. Like it's that's just wasteful. In, wasteful ending up in a landfill. And like that's, even can, if they're cheap, like, I don't know. Can you I replace much the just the lenses in the gooders? They are physically replaceable and gooder does technically cover, uh, the warranty does technically cover against scratches. Yeah, um, It's a one-year warranty. So... Uh, I don't know if Gooder would send out a replacement lens or just replace the whole thing. I'm not really exactly sure on the specifics of that warranty. But um, as I mentioned in the review that I wrote for this thing, is I would certainly prefer that they just not scratch in the first place as opposed that's to... That's going to probably make them cost more. Yes, exactly. Well, presumably, yes. But how much more? Like, let's say they cost $50 instead of $45. Would that be enough to have a lens that doesn't scratch up? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, Oakley, back to your point, Oakley hasn't been perfect the last few years. Their prism lenses have some pretty well-known durability issues. The coatings are starting to have an issue. Um, and I think they've they've been fixing that. But yeah, I mean, I've certainly had uh, the coatings like uh, delaminate, so. Yeah, I mean, I would I would much rather have a warranty that I never, or I would much rather have a product with no warranty that I never feel the need to use than a product that has a warranty that I feel like I need to use all the time. Um, so that said, there does seem like there should be some sort of happy medium, like, I tested some Tifosi sunglasses not too long ago. They were like, I want to say they were right around like 80 or $90 or something like that. So it was certainly more expensive than these gooders, but they were actually quite high quality. Like the lenses were good and they didn't scratch them and stuff like that. Um, yeah, like if, if there were sunglasses that were legitimately cheap, like these gooders, but held up a little bit better, I think that is what would be really required to really kind of shake things up. Because at this point there's still a big downside to these things that are going to turn off a lot of people. Yes. I was very distracted by a dog that was eating my Silka four pump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those pesky wooden handles. <laughs> Zach, any thoughts? <laughs> On the puppy? Puppies are terrible. <laughs> you, like in four years, it will be the most wonderful dog. Four years <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a lot of very expensive things away. <laughs> It yeah. is. It yep. is. You you will quickly learn to remove a lot of things off of the floor, Dave. Like clearly, clearly, I would say at this point, you have too many things on the floor that are within easy, easy reach of Richie. I, I would definitely say that's true. For us, for like when we before we got a puppy, it was like, oh, puppies are great, and then we got a puppy, and it was just like puppies are terrible. I cannot wait until this is just a full grown adult dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because Wallace is awesome right now. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> that's right, Dave. You'll t your your time will come eventually, but in the meantime, you might need to up that tool budget. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of tools, our last bit of news before we move on to Ask a Mechanic. So Dave, your most recent Cool Tool Tuesday column covered 
a whole bunch of things that you suggested people use, or at least maybe have handy or might want to use for setting up their disc brakes. Uh, you did a previous one that talked about all sorts of things that you recommended for installing them. This is all sorts of things that you recommended for kind of tuning and adjusting that sort of thing. All this stuff is incredibly useful. The feedback from our readers has been generally fantastic. Um, however, for as useful as these tool guides and sort of like repair things go, I still have to wonder, and this is a fairly simple job if you have everything on hand, mm -hmm. um, but a lot if of you have everything on hand this, and the knowledge, it, fairly simple job. Yes, yes, exactly. So what I'm wondering, and Zach, I would love to get your feedback on this, is where do, where do you suggest people draw the line between collecting all the hardware and tools and stuff that they need to perform a certain job and then collecting all the knowledge and experience potentially that they need to do it well, where do you draw the line between having to gather up all that stuff versus just taking it to someone who knows what they're doing already? I, I would say it greatly depends on why you're working on your own bike. If you're doing it to save money, that is a very different story than whether you're doing it for the, the hobby side of it or the experience side of it or the, the challenge side of it, right? So if you're doing the latter, if you're doing it for the challenge side of it or, or you want bicycle mechanics to be your own sort of hobby, then the price of tools and the investment to do the repairs it doesn't weigh in as much as whether you're just doing it so you don't have to pay someone else to do it. Uh, so I think that is the question you need to ask yourself. And if you're doing it to save money, then a lot of this stuff, like a brake bleed, you're probably better off in often cases. If you've got like a Shimano brake, you're probably not going to have to bleed it very often at all. And you might be better off just having a, a mechanic do it once and do it right. I think if I were not a mechanic, what I would want to know how to do and to have the tools to do would be to basically change brake pads to be able to do that. Like from a practicality standpoint, whether you're just like everyday riding or you're on a trip somewhere and there's not a good bike shop nearby and you burn through brake pads. Like for me, that knowledge to be able to like push the pistons back in and put new pads in and then line things up. That sounds really practical in terms of bleeding. I feel like theoretically it shouldn't be something that you have to do all that often. And most people are going to have multiple bikes. So maybe let's say you have Shimano on your road bike, but you have SRAM on your mountain bike or vice versa. And like, then you have two bleed kits and like, where do you draw the line of how many tools am I buying versus when I just take it to the bike shop to get a brake bleed when it needs a brake bleed. Um, so I think for me, I would, I would just want to have the stuff to be able to change brake pads and beyond that, like just take it to a shop. Yep. And even, even unfortunately, like e hydraulic disc brakes are not necessarily as consumer service friendly as perhaps they should be given that a lot of people expect bicycles to be a consumer friendly product. Oh, uh, you don't say, Dave. Yeah, crazy, right? Uh, like replacing a Shimano brake pad, for example, you've got those ceramic pistons and there is like a, a reasonable chance of causing irreparable damage to your brake caliper by using yeah. the wrong tools <laughs> or the wrong method for pushing them back in. Shimano yep. officially recommends that when you push those pistons back in that you, you actually open up the master cylinder bleed port to relieve pressure so you can't accidentally cause any damage to the muscle cylinder bladder or or cause damage to those pistons. And that's a step that a lot of people aren't doing. And yeah, most people don't have issue from it, but it's kind of, at that point, it becomes quite an advanced repair just to replace a set of brake pads if you really want to do it the right way. Well, Dave, you clearly, I, I think it's pretty obvious what side of that fence you, you fall on because mm -hmm. you are not recouping anywhere near 100% of your cost in doing in, in purchasing all these tools and stuff. No. No. I mean for me yeah it's it's the hobby of it right like just uh finding the best tool to do a to do a task and uh yeah just forever trying to figure out the best way to do something. But that said, uh I think it's worth also keeping in mind that Cool Tool Tuesday as a as a series is is kind of working on that ethos. It's it's designed to show people what the best tools are and it's designed almost with the professional mechanic in mind and then it's designed also as like a discovery and sort of uh, an information piece for the consumer level uh, but a lot of the recommendations are based on professional use 
and may not be applicable to the to the home user. Um, rather, I think I hope it's just interesting to the home user. I mean, it's yeah, I would say it's totally cool. It's like let's say you're never going to be able to buy it, but like looking at cool photos of a fifteen thousand dollar bike is still yeah, really cool. Exactly. And like that's the same with this tool tool uh, series that you're doing. Yeah. Right. I, I guess except in this case. You, know, you might spend a couple hundred bucks on a tool as opposed to several thousand on some bike. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, a lot of the tool recommendations I'd say are aspirational. And and I think some people get confused over that and perhaps offended that I have tools that cost so much and they run fully uh, serviceable and fully profitable bike shops with far less. Um, and that's fine. Dave, let me ask you, I would like to to ask a few questions as far as what you have in your personal tool chest. Sure. Do you have English bottom bracket English bottom bracket cutters? Yes. And Italian and T47. Why? What are you doing? How often do you use those? The T47 ones are actually still in their original wax. So uh, that answers that one. <laughs> I mean, the Italian, you only need one because it's the same threading for both sides. Yeah. Well, yeah, you need one to guide the other one, right? Yeah, you yeah. need one to guide the other one. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Italian have been used, actually. The Italians have been used. There's quite a few Pinarellos around here. Do you have a head tube facer? Yes. No way, really? Yes. When was the last time you used it? That's been a while. That one's been a while. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And, and what I don't have is I don't have the angle cutters for it for the new like IS standards and stuff. So, yeah, you just have the um, old. Yeah, I've old, just like, got like the, the regular, you know, like yeah, one inch and one eight, one eighth. What about steer tube threading tools? No, I don't actually have that. Oh, sad. Yeah. Does it bother you, however, that you don't have that? It will now. <laughs> uh, it was a, it was a few months ago on on the episode. You asked me whether I had a tool for campy centaur kind of bottom brackets, like the the Michi style mm-hmm. or Michi yeah, style. Like the, 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 the little the six, half, yeah. six yeah. half moon and spline I was like, thing. No, I don't. And then I went out and bought one and I actually managed to use it a few weeks ago. So, <laughs> you know, redemption. It's fantastic. All right. How about this? How about this one? There's no, if, if you have this one, I, 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 we might just have to fire you just because just for how insane you are. How about a chamfering tool for a Mavic bottom bracket? <laughs> no. I don't. Oh, thank God. Okay. Whew. All right. There is some level of sanity there. Yeah. Zach, you know what I'm talking about, right? I do you know what you're talking about? Yeah. I like as as ridiculous as my tool collection is, I actually it's based around things that I genuinely believe I'll use. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I don't believe I'll use a Mavic chamfering tool. How about how about a helicomatic freewheel tool? No. Okay, that's probably good too. All right. Well, mm. But put it this way, put it this way. I was, I believe, I was trying to work this out. I believe I was 16 years old when I got, for my birthday, a Chris King ISO toolkit. <laughs> 16? Yeah. This is all your parents' fault. Yeah, because I mowed a lot of lawns and worked a lot of afternoon jobs after school to buy the hub tool set. And then I was like, now I need the tool. And then it took another like three or four years before I actually needed to use that tool because the hubs <laughs> are so damn durable and ge- general maintenance isn't, doesn't require that tool set, which I didn't realize when I'd ordered the tool set. But anyway, um, yeah. Huh. So Okay. All right. Well, I guess that's about what I expected. If, if you had had that Mavic tool, I would have been really, really mm. upset. Mm. <laughs> All um, right. Well, yeah. enough with the news. Since we're talking about tools and stuff anyway... Let's just go ahead and dive into Ask a Mechanic. Derailers, bearings, disc brakes, and rim brakes, sealants and chain loops. Ask a Mechanic. All right, I know I have said multiple times before that all of our Ask a Mechanic questions come exclusively from our Vela Club members, and that is mostly still the case today. However, I decided to dive into the Cycling Tips Forum a little bit today to pull a few questions out of there. So if you have not become a Velo Club member, please consider doing so. Uh, if you have not checked out the forum yet, go ahead and do that too, because there's a whole bunch of conversations going on in there. It's quite lively. It is. It is. Sometimes occasionally too lively, but <laughs> that's, that's, another, that's another topic. First question. This one comes from Anthony Privatera. This is a bit of a follow-up question from a, a, something that he posted earlier. Anthony is doing his annual Shimano cable and housing replacement. 
said he got a little over eager and bought a whole brake and shifter setup. But he said if the rear derailleur and mechanical disc brakes are fine, and if the inside of one of the housings that he removed looks good, does he really need to do the rest right now? Um, he's asking partly because of uh, the fact that his bike has internal cable routing. He doesn't want to deal with the whole snafu of kind of like replacing all that stuff. Um, but he also said because it seems a little wasteful to replace everything if it works just fine. Uh, he said he is not sure if, he, if it's because he rode less in the rain or if because the semi-internally cabled, if the, yeah, or if because the semi-internally routed cables are better at keeping contamination out, but all that stuff seems to be pretty okay. Uh, what are our thoughts on this? Um, does he need to replace all that stuff as, as often as he thinks, or what, what do we think here? I mean, the components, I think, should be fine. Those, those should be okay if those are working all right. I mean, I would ask... If you said it works perfectly fine, why is he replacing it in the first place? It, it sounds like he's sort of just so doing it on a schedule. He's just if doing it's it like year. a preventative thing, then I wouldn't necessarily look at it as being wasteful. You're doing it to prevent being out on a ride and your cable snapping or whatever. But I would say like in terms of replacing cables and housing, I'd see it as almost pointless to replace one but not the other. Um, one thing that I might mention, that, yeah, there is this thing where I've always been a fan of replacing cable and housing at the same time. Certainly have been in the past, but... Uh, one thing that I am noticing with a lot of the internally routed stuff, especially bikes that have housing from end to end, um, if you are, if those ends are pretty much completely shielded and if you mostly ride in the dry and if it's not too dusty or gritty or wherever where you are, and a lot of times that housing can last quite a long time. And with Shimano stuff, one thing that is probably good, a good idea to do, it's at least to change the inners, the inner cables every year or so just because Shimano levers sometimes do have a tendency to kind of eat the cables inside the shifter head. Um, but yeah, the, if, rear, the rear shifter. Yeah, especially relate. using it so much and the, the, that bends kind of tight. But one thing that I would recommend doing, if you are going to consider reusing your housing and if you know that it's in good shape, um, what I would recommend doing is clipping that inner cable just outside of the housing so that you're not... Basically, the cable inside of the housing is not really going to get very dirty whereas the cable that sits exposed is what generally gets pretty dirty. So if you cut that off and then pull the rest of it out, then you avoid pulling a lot of dirt into the housing. Um, so that might be something that you consider, maybe like replacing the inner wires every year, but only replacing the outers every other year. That seems pretty reasonable, as long as everything's in good shape, of course. And that would also save you from having to rerun all the housings through your frame. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would say, uh, there was a mention of mechanical disc brakes. I would say I would re- replace the cables and housing together when you feel there's an increase in friction at the lever, when the lever feel gets harder to pull. And I would just base that replacement on feel alone because realistically, think- you're not going to snap a brake cable because there's no real angular issue uh, causing that cable to fray. The problem with that though is like usually similar with like say suspension service. Yeah, it's gradual. It's, it's a very gradual, it's gradual. thing. So yeah. you don't you don't really notice it unless you feel a brand new one side yeah. by side. So yeah. like oh if it feels bad, but like that's true. If it's, yeah, most people don't. Like, it's so don't. gradual. Most people aren't going to be like yeah. that in tune to know yeah. what it should feel like. Yeah. Um, Go to a bike shop like, and feel the brakes there. <laughs> yes. And then compare it to yours. Uh, but yeah, gears and Shimano shifters is a different story, and I'd be inclined to say preventative maintenance on the gear inner cables, as James was saying, is is probably not a bad idea um, on an annual basis. I would say too, like if you really don't want to re or like if you really want to reuse housing and not have to fish it through, like I would be more inclined to reuse on the brake side of things. Mm-hmm. But at least shifting, like everything's now 11, 12 speed. Like yeah. I would put I'm new housing sensitive. on there just to yeah. have like the best, crispest, cleanest shifting. Like, because you just put a new cable in and you've done all this work and then it still doesn't shift perfectly. Like, that's super annoying. So adding a couple of feet of housing to your bike is, it's not that wasteful and you're going to have a much better performing bicycle. So and one handy tip, uh, since you did mention earlier that uh, this was not included in this question directly, but I do know from the post that um, Anthony had a little bit of a, a little bit of a headache rerunning some housing through his frame. So one thing that I would recommend to everyone, if you do have full housing running through your frame and you're replacing that stuff, before you pull the housing completely out of the frame, leave the inner wire in the bike and then slide the outer housing out of the frame, leaving the inner wire running through the bike. 
because then you can reuse that inner wire, at least just a little bit of it, to help guide that outer housing through your frame. There's a lot less fishing involved that way. Not always necessarily- Some bikes are easier with this than others. Yeah, it's not necessarily a foolproof way, but it's certainly a lot easier than than always starting from scratch. So, last, Never last, last little tip there. Always take steps to avoid having to start from scratch. Yes, <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Next question. This one comes from Stuart Brown, a regular customer, I would say, of the Ask a Mechanic segment. Stuart recently replaced the stock Presfit 30 bottom bracket on his Merida Silex with a Seabear ceramic bottom bracket. He said it's creaking like crazy and it's driving him nuts. Uh, he followed the Seabear instructions, uh, which say to press the cups in with grease. The Seabear bottom bracket has aluminum cups as opposed to the original one, which was plastic. He's wondering if this is creating some sort of issue. He said the Seabear wasn't quite as expensive as like a ceramic speed bottom bracket, but it was expensive enough that he wants to keep using it. Should he reinstall those cups with retaining compound or is that bad with an aluminum shell? Stuart, I would actually say that an aluminum shell is more conducive to installing that with retaining compound than carbon. Uh, opinions, Dave, Zach? Yeah, I would Yeah, I would use the... I mean, clearly if the grease isn't working, then I would try something else. So if the other option is retaining compound, which usually is, in my experience, the best, quietest for the longest time for PressFit, like best option there. Especially so, for metal and metal. Yeah, so I would take everything out. and But before you do that, you have to clean it really well to not have any grease residue on there. Um, so clean it out and then use some alcohol or something to to fully get all the grease residue off. Yeah, and then um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's like Loctite 690 or something like that. Like it's usually like 609 a green. maybe? It's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's usually a green. green one, yeah. Um, but that usually works really well. I mean, it makes it a little bit more difficult to get the cups out later. Um, it's certainly not impossible, um, but... Um, the, the whole thing with creaking is that you have some sort of tiny movement that happens under load and grease, while it keeps things from seizing because it's still viscous and it's because it's still, you know, it's, it's not a solid thing. When you are pushing pretty hard on that crank, those cups can still move a little bit and push that grease around. Whereas retaining compound, it's basically just, it hardens into glue. So it, it's just not going to let stuff fills move. all those little gaps and everything. Yeah. Yeah, my my initial thought was uh, take it to a mechanic to ensure that there's nothing more sinister going on because it it still also seems that. it still seems I don't know in my mind my initial thought was that it's strange that you'd put in a brand new seabed bottom bracket and immediately have terrible creaking. I mean, it could be that he has a slightly oversized shell or or over, I mean, I would also like, like I don't know what their instructions are, but like let's say it says degrease in between the the cups and the frame interface, but there's no grease on the spindle and bottom bracket bearing interface like maybe that area needs grease yeah um like it might not be the frame bottom bracket interface creaking it could be something could be else pedals could yeah. be chain rings chain wing bolts uh we've had a lot of instances lately where creaking was coming from the rear wheel um and not from the crank although yeah i mean so if, if we go on the assumption though that this is related to the bottom bracket cups then yeah um i i would say to reinstall it with retaining compound and i would say even if it's if if you're going to go through the trouble anyway um, just to ensure that that is not going to be a source of creaking later on, I would say to install them with retaining compound. That's my preference. Yep. Um, Especially for a high-quality serviceable bottom bracket like that where you don't necessarily need to take sure. the cups out again unless it's like unless those cups are stopping you from getting to like the DI2 or something in the frame or, or replacing a cable, then you can kind of get away with just almost bonding the cups in and then you can use tools to service and replace the bearings without having to take those cups out in the future. Right. Right. Yeah, because usually you're only taking the bottom bracket out to fix creaking. So if the retaining compound fixes yep. the creaking, then it doesn't matter, I would say. Like the only times I use grease on PressFit is like, let's say it's a cyclocross race bike that's going to get destroyed and the bottom bracket comes out every other week. Then then I'll use grease for that just to make my life easier. But a bike that's like a road bike or something where it it's not going to get hammered and pummeled with mud and power washers, then yeah, I would for sure use a retaining compound. All right, next question. This one comes from Rob Stein. Rob is another regular customer. Is there anything that someone can add to a tubeless wheel setup to keep the sealant from drying up too quickly? Uh, he said liquid latex often has ammonia to it, to his understanding. So could you maybe just add a few milliliters of that or maybe alcohol? He said he's trying to avoid the stanimals, those dreaded little solid latex things that make all that noise in your tires. Rob, this is a little bit of a tricky question because um, sealant companies generally go to a lot of effort to keep their formulas private or I guess secret to some extent. Um, however, it is also a requirement in a lot of situations that companies disclose 
um, any sort of like potentially hazardous materials that are in their stuff. So uh, I know in the U.S. at least you can look up something that's called the MSDS. It's a material safety data sheet, and that'll list any sort of potentially hazardous chemicals, which will usually list the solvent that is in that material. Um, Stans supposedly is ammonia-free now. I don't really know what they're using for a solvent, but um, glycol is another is another popular solvent that people use in uh, liquid latex sealants. I'm not really sure what else is out there. And it, it's interesting that you even bring this up because this is exactly what, uh, what Silka was trying to address with its latest, uh, what do they call it, the ultimate tubeless sealant. Because um, they have this stuff called Replenisher that's basically... Have, have a fun little oh, Silka stuff. I, I sold it on a bike recently because <laughs> somebody was very curious and bought some and wanted to try it. And you're talking about the stands animal or whatever people call it. Stanimals. Like, rotating around and making noise. The little carbon bits in the Silka sealant seemingly were rattling around in the tire, like huh. separate from the liquid. Like the liquid was fully pooled. Like the, we put it in, wrote it. He didn't have any flats, but we were like, there's this weird noise. So we opened it back up and all the, the sealant was pooled at the bottom, but all the carbon bits had kind of all like coagulated with each other and were just like bouncing around inside the tire, which was weird. very interesting. Huh. So I haven't tried this silica sealant yet, but I wonder, is, is, is that like a feature, not a bug sort of thing? <laughs> Oh, not sure. Weird. But yeah, just a little, that just made me think of that. All right. Well, yeah. So, so Rob, that again is a little bit of a tricky question because you have to see what is in that particular sealant. But I, I, I'm kind of hesitant to just sort of, you know, look up the, the sheet and then sort of add in whatever the solvent is because you still don't know exactly what it is. Yeah. And there's even adding the solvent, I don't think it's going to necessarily give you the results you want it's going to suspend the it might suspend briefly and momentarily suspend those liquid um sorry the the latex particles but that's not necessarily going to ensure that your sealant continues to work the way it was designed to yeah i would look towards more like like orange seal makes an endurance one like something that sealants that'll last longer rather than dry out yeah Mm. all right rob well Sorry, that may not be may not have been a great answer to your question, or maybe not the maybe not the answer you were looking for. Mm. But that's what we've got for you. Um, our next question comes from Kevin Tamora. Uh, he's running a set of Hunt All Road Wheels, and he is looking for tips on getting some Continental GP five thousand TR tires to seat. He said one side of the tire just doesn't want to get get onto that, or one side of the tire just doesn't want to pop onto that bead. So he's using a floor pump with one of those separate high volume chambers to quickly apply a burst of air into the tire. Um, I would say we have a whole bunch of tips here. Uh, Dave, you want to take this one? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I was trying to think of something snarky to say, but I've got nothing. <laughs> um, is yeah, I, first step is always take out the valve core. Um, that'll improve your airflow, and that will uh, yeah just allow the the full volume of the pump to actually make it through the valve as efficiently as possible. Um, so yeah, do that. That should often be all that you need. Uh, but failing that, then you can move into things such as soapy water, which will sort of help with the help form a seal or momentarily help form a seal and also help lubricate that bead up onto the rim. Uh, and then Personally, I just like using an air compressor because it's it's because <laughs> uh, I can. Um, but yeah, there's there's also yeah just the fact that some pumps, um, some of those tubeless pumps, still uh, despite the fact that they do have a pretty efficient burst of air, they're not uh, as much the pressure behind them and the the amount of airflow through the tube that they have is still limited compared to other options. So you might find that an air compressor still gives you a more efficient blast of air. Uh, the other thing I should mention too is uh, I did go back and forth with Kevin a little bit on this. Um, so one thing that he was doing, he was us- using one of those big high volume chambers to try and get that tire to seat, but he was just using the air in the chamber. Uh, so he wasn't continuing to apply pressure at that point. So I would also recommend uh, once you get that initial burst of air in there, assuming it's not seated after you make sure the valve core is removed and if you're using soapy water, I would say to keep pumping the system, just keep pumping up the tire until you hit uh, un- until you hit the maximum allowable pressure, which, and I'm talking about the maximum allow- allowable pressure, uh, there'll be one for the tire and one for the wheel. So go with whichever value is lower. Um, so keep pumping up until you get to that that maximum pressure. 
Um, because at that point, if the tire still doesn't seat, then that's an entirely different issue because that sounds like that tire just doesn't really fit on that rim. And then that goes back to the whole tubeless tire and rim fitment thing that we kind of go off about fairly regularly. Every other episode. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the second to last question that we have here. Uh, this one comes from Matt Hughes. Matt has a set of disc brake Mavic Cosmic UST Pro wheels. Did ever since the factory Mavic tubeless tape died and he installed DT Swiss tubeless tape, he's had... Uh, he's had issues with tires getting stuck on the rim. Said in other words, he cannot unlock the beads and he's actually had to cut some tires off to replace them. Uh, do we have any suggestions on how to fix this besides switching back to tubes? So the tires that he has gotten stuck on there are Specialized Roubaix Pro Tubeless and Schwabi Pro 1 TLEs, the newer version. Uh, he's looking for tips on removing them or tips on other tire and rim slash tape combos that might work better. Um, I'd be curious if with the original Mavic tape, if he was using the same tires, like mm. only the tape is the variable that has changed, or if he was also using a different tire. He was not using a different tire then. So there, there are some questions then as far, yeah, for sure, as far as what tires he's running. But like, so if, so if he was using the Specialized Roubaix tire with the Mavic tape and it came off fine, and now with the DT tape with the same tire, it doesn't come off. Like the variable there is the tape. So I would try a different tape or maybe a, one less layer of tape, depending, like it's hard to say without seeing it, but like there, the variable is very clearly the tape. So it's not a tire issue. It's like, yeah, the DT tape is thick, thicker or it's like not pushed down as well, or it's a different width. There's like, who knows, but that's where I would start. Yeah. Single, single layer of that tape should be sufficient. That DT Swiss tape is quite rigid in its ways and it should only need a single layer. So if you're using more than that, then I wouldn't be surprised if that's the issue. If you're using just a single layer of that tape, then I'm surprised that that would be the variable that's causing the issue. Um, maybe it's just like a buildup of latex sealant over the years that's causing the tire to stick more or something like that. Yeah, one thing that is also a possibility, so my, in, my initial thought on this was certainly that the, the DT Swiss tape that he's using was a fair bit thicker than the Mavic tape. Um, but having looked it up a little bit more, it's, it, sh it looks like they should be about the same, or if anything, the DT Swiss tape might actually be even thinner. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, it's so not one other possibility. Yeah, one other possibility is that um, if the tape is thinner, uh, and you would have a sense for this by how easy or hard it was to get the tire to seat on the rim. If it was really, really easy to get seated, in the sense that the tire that the beads popped on pretty readily, that's usually a good indication that you don't really have a uh, a situation with the rim with the rim being too big. Um, but if if you have a situation like that, then it's possible that you're having a little bit of sealant seepage in between um, kind of like the base of the tire bed and the tire beads. And that would basically glue the tire on there. So that could potentially be a two. Um, although in those situations, it's usually not that hard to break the bead loose. Like they're usually not held on there like tubular glue. Um, so like that might make it a little bit more difficult, but it shouldn't make it super hard to get the tire off to the point where you have to cut it off. No, and I think the Mavics, though, I'm trying to remember, I think they have a pretty distinct, like, bead shelf, like, lip. They do. Mm -hmm. So you have to push it up over that. Um, but some tire rim combinations are just impossible. But, I mean, I would say, like, if it's the ti same tire, I would just get try and find some of the Mavic tape or a different brand tape and, like, just rule that out. Yeah. Uh, there is a, I can't remember the exact number of this, uh, number for this model tape, but uh, 3M makes a tape that is super, super thin. It's almost kind of like this, uh, it's almost kind of like this translucent copper color. Um, oh yeah, 3M 8992. Yes, okay, uh, there you I'm go. doing that off the top of my head, so if that's wrong, <laughs> I'm, I apologize. I, I, I think you're correct there. <laughs> I believe it's, so, it's a powder coating masking tape, if, if, the, yes. if that's the one you're thinking of. Yeah. And it's, it, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. It is very, very thin. Uh, and just, you can buy them in, it up. You can exactly buy them in bulk rolls online for pretty inexpensively. Um, so if, if it is the situation where that tubeless tape is too thick, then that is something that you can go with because that's about as thin as you can get. Yeah. So okay. that might be a way to go. Uh, the 8992 is the green masking tape. I was way off. Mm, okay. Well, it's a 3M something. And I'm pretty sure the one that I'm thinking of is kind of like this coppery brown stuff. But I believe I think the green stuff is still pretty thin too, isn't it? It's very thin, yeah. I like that coppery stuff. Maybe it's Giant uses that on their wheels. I'm mm. trying to remember. I feel like there's a couple of companies yeah. that have seen that stuff. And it yeah. could be like their own variation of it, but for the most part, they just buy it bulk from... Yeah. Uh, the, the, green, the green 3M 8992 tape is... Um, it's definitely not the same stuff that a Fido Mariposa sells. Mm. 
Interesting. Yeah, as Dave says that with a wink. It's All right. absolutely not. Last question before we wrap things up. This one comes from Jeremy Hammond. If you have a dyno hub, but no lights or cable attached, which then makes me wonder, why do you have a dyno hub, Jeremy? Um, so if you have a dyno hub and nothing's attached to it, do you need to cover the pins on the hub if it's going to be a wet and muddy two-day ride? And if yes, what do you cover it with? Or do you just leave it be and wash it afterward? I have very little experience with dyno hubs. Uh, I don't have very much experience with dyno hubs either, except I will say that the the contacts for those are usually pretty weather resistant, generally speaking. Um, I'm kind of inclined to leave it be. Um, I mean, I would think like if it's not attached to anything, you're not you don't have to worry about a short or anything like that. No, I don't think he's worried about a short. He's worried about it corroding. Yeah. I mean, covering it with electrical tape might not be a bad idea, though my concern there is that unless you are really, really super careful about applying it, you might actually be trapping water in there. Um, I mean, I'd like to think those contacts are not a corroding material. You um, would hope. Yeah, because the thing is that the, 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 the wires that you attach to, they're not weather, they're not weather yeah, tight. Yeah, it's not like a waterproof seal on the little plastic cap that holds the wires down. So I'm kind of inclined to leave it be, personally. I... Although I would hate for Jeremy to go on this ride and then come back and say like, hey, my, my oh, contacts Kaylee's here. Quick. Oh, Kaylee's <laughs> out of the dungeon. Kaylee, how'd you get out of there? I guess that's why the banging <laughs> stopped. Uh, well, first I had to build a rope ladder out of dental floss. Uh, hmm. And that took at least an hour or so. Then I had to dig my way out of the concrete with a small... Uh, camping spoon. Titanium camping spoon was all I had on me. But I managed to get out. That's good news. Okay. That is very good news. Well, Kaylee, you are just in time for us to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> but but since you weren't here for the intro, I will go ahead and ask you the question that I was going to ask you if you were actually with us at the beginning here. Um, Kaylee, when do you prefer dead blow hammer over a rubber mallet? Mm, always. <laughs> never? never? You, you always go with the dead blow. Wait, huh? Is the answer always or never? I'm, I'm, on, I'm unclear on what's... Uh... I'm I'm just saying when when do you prefer a dead blow hammer uh, when do you prefer a dead blow hammer over a rubber mallet? This uses a big sledge. <laughs> I'll sledge all the time. A big metal sledge all the time. <laughs> yeah, both okay. a rubber mallet and a dead blow mallet hammer are um they're specialist tools. Kaylee doesn't have those. <laughs> <laughs> I have the kind where you can rip nails out with the other side. What's what kind is that? The best for bicycles. <laughs> yeah. Oh, framing hammer, yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, mm. Well, I'm right. sorry well, I missed it. I'm, I'm genuinely sorry I missed it. Um, but you know, I think avid CT fans and listeners will realize that we've had a bit of a week, uh, and so that's what I was doing, dealing with <laughs> lots of meetings, bit lots of, a of week. meetings lately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Synergizing, so, so many meetings synergizing lately. so hard. You don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. All right. Well, on that note, we have some. Uh, we have some things to, to, to make more efficient. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we will say goodbye to you for this week. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening to the show. If you haven't done so already, please go ahead and give us a rating or review on iTunes. It does help us out because, as, you, as you've noticed, we don't run any ads on Nerd Alert, and that's not because people don't ask. People ask all the time. We say no. I'm still a little confused as to why we do that. Um, we hate money. But, uh, we hate it so much. Uh, yeah, apparently. Maybe, maybe like, let's not, let's not tell the sales team that we do that. Maybe they just, they don't know about us. Maybe that's the... <laughs> no, I think they do know, know oh, they about us. Oh, they definitely know. They, def- <laughs> they most definitely know. So anyway, please go ahead and leave us a rating or review. Tell your buddies about Nerd Alert because we certainly like hearing more people listen to the show and let us know what they think. Uh, if you've got any questions for us, go ahead and send this and send them to us. You can you can go ahead and hit me up at tech at cyclingtips.com. Uh, or you can find all of us on Instagram, Twitter, that sort of thing. Or as I mentioned earlier, go ahead and sign up to be a Velo Club member or just hop onto the Cycling Tips forum and let us know what you think. Let us leave us your ask and mechanic questions and we'll get to you as soon as we can. What if the ads were by completely unrelated companies? Like we have a toothpaste ad. Like they're not gonna get offended <laughs> we, when we rip apart somebody's derailleur. We you know, years ago, <laughs> <out of> way. <laughs> years uh, Kaylee, do you remember years ago when, not too long after we started the regular Cycling Tips Weekly podcast, we had to we we had to read an ad for um, a bone broth bone company. Bone broth, sounds great. Bone, bone broth. broth. It was like it was like the first or second stage of the Tour de France too. Yeah, we it were was like something like that. We were like, hanging what out. Would we do just with be this? hilarious. Like <laughs> advertisement for bone broth. This company just came out with new brakes. Well, we yeah, we basically. <laughs> We failed. We failed in our in our duties on they, that front. They, the sales team was less than happy were, with us. 
Yeah, yeah, that company apparently was not super satisfied with the return rate on their ads <laughs> so, that we read. But for you're Bone still promoting the them to this day. Podcast. Yeah, that, well, but, except we can't remember the name of the company at this point. They had some. Um, they had some kind of like promo code that you could like type in and go buy bone broth at a discount, and zero people no went and bought bone broth. <laughs> 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 So like, maybe no, our target. No, we have listeners. We swear. <laughs> yeah. So our our target our target audience may not be super huge fans of bone broth, or at so, least this bone broth. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Well, I mean, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I'm, I'm not entirely opposed to to doing ads from you know super unrelated companies. Like, because that's the reason. Is like if you had a bike company and then we said something bad about them, exactly. Get yeah. upset. Exactly. Like, if it was something completely unrelated. It would just be comical. Like you know, a, a carpeting company paint. <laughs> I don't know, like fast well, we food company. We use paintbrushes to sometimes wash bikes, so they could get offended. We could if we talked oh, about paint. Man, what if we did free ads for the companies owned by listeners of the podcast? Oh, mm. Mm. interesting. All right, mm. I'm up for it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that could be fun. That could be fun. Our sales just, team might be a little bit upset with that. But I think anyway, yeah, like, they're not making any. They're not making any commission off this podcast anyway. So it's, it's the same for them either way. <laughs> not losing. So we if can, anyone we can limit this, it. like you only get yeah. one. You only get one free one. And then if you want to continue, and let's say you're not in the bike industry, if you want to continue, then then you're gonna have to pay us. Uh, it, well, we, in Velo we, we memberships. could say, yeah, <laughs> we we could do this as a bit of an experiment. So if you are listening right now and you have a company or product that you feel like is completely unrelated to cycling that you want to see us, you want to hear us plug on the show, go ahead and send me a note at tech at cyclingtips.com and we'll see what we can do. If someone's still listening at this point, they're very dedicated. (laughs) (laughs) Preferably hyper-local. I want like a fish store in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's what I want. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Send me your ideas. Many bodies of water. (laughs) (laughs) Send me your ideas and we will figure something out. And we'll go ahead and finish on that. So thanks as always for listening. We will see you next time. Bye, everybody. It was great hanging out with you all for the last four and a half minutes. (laughs) 